always uh, great to be back here with you in this way as we open our Bibles together and continue this journey through the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're going to explore this passage. Amanda just wrote a, uh, read for us a couple minutes ago. I really love this passage uh, a lot. What we'll find in this passage is a very beautiful description, a theology, really, from the Apostle Paul of what it means not just to believe in God, but to experience Him, to experience God in life-changing ways. Now, I have to admit, for most of my life, when I'd hear people talking like this, talking about knowing God, talking about experiencing God, and having some sort of personal interactions and fellowship with Him, I was always very skeptical. I didn't know what to make of it. I uh, didn't really get it, and I wasn't really buying it. But then my view on this matter very, very much changed to be real honest with you today, me being up here like this, speaking to you in this way, being one of your pastors even, this is, this is not something that I sought out. It's not something I ever uh, planned for or expected in my life. It's not something I ever wanted or, or asked for, at least not for the first 45 years of my life. In fact, if you had said to me at any point in my life prior to March 6th, 2012, seven years ago, this week actually, that I'd be doing this right now, living my life uh, for Jesus, declaring the truth and the beauty of the gospel and planting churches. I would have been quite confused if you said that to me, and I would have called you quite confused too. But here I am, and here we are, and so how is that? How, How did that happen? Friends, the way that happened was an experience happened. I experienced our God. I encountered his love and his grace poured out deep within me in a way that I never would have imagined was possible. He gave me a very, very powerful glimpse of himself unexpectedly that day, and he became more real to me that day than anything or anyone uh, I've ever experienced in this life, and it changed everything. My entire view of reality was fractured in a moment's time. He stunned me. He overwhelmed me. He overtook me by his grace in a good way, in the, in the best possible way. And as I studied the Bible about these things and the uh, experiences of others across history, the more I learned uh, that I was far from alone, the more I realized I was not losing my mind after all. And along the way since then, I've had a couple of other very powerful experiences of intimacy with God in much the same way. But most typically, most typically I would say I have experienced God in more simple and subtle, but in still in very remarkable and satisfying ways, sensing his presence and his peace, sensing his love and his grace and his guidance at different times and in different ways. Friends, I am not a person who is prone to emotionalism. I have a PhD in the sciences. I am wired to be analytical, much more so than emotional. So I have struggled at times what to make of all this and how to communicate this to others. I have worried at times that if I talk too much about this, it will uh, sound either like I'm bragging or I'm crazy. Perhaps that's why I don't talk about this much. Maybe I need to talk about it more. I'm not sure. But for this passage... And for this sermon, I feel like I'm supposed to talk about it. I feel like I I need to talk about it because I believe what Paul's message is here, the whole thrust of this 
a passage I hope to show you is that you and I as Christians, we need to be seeking and we need to be expecting life-changing spiritual experiences with our God. Now, this sort of talk may make some of you a bit uncomfortable. It is true there is something of a split among many churches and many Christians around us when you start talking about uh, spiritual experiences. There's a very real division among Christian churches and and denominations on the importance of of using our heads and having a, a thinking faith in the Christian life versus the importance of feeling and experiencing God in the Christian life. Many churches are all about the Bible and all about the truth. We're going to learn this. We're going to study that. We're going to take this class and go through this Bible study. And as it should be, right? That's a good thing. That's a great thing. If you're going to do one thing right as a church, do that. But many of these same churches, what you find is that many churches who are very strong on the word, strong on the truth, they're, they're very suspicious, they're very cautious when it comes to spiritual experiences. They're very wary of too much talk about feelings and emotions when it comes to their faith. It makes them uh, nervous. It sounds too mystical. How do you know what's real and what's not? And there is indeed some legitimacy to those concerns. But what's not legitimate is to allow those concerns to lead people like you and I to live out the Christian life entirely from the neck up, all thinking and and no feeling, all doctrine and no spiritual experiences to speak of. Then, of course, you have a lot of other churches where the situation is kind of uh, reversed, where there's not enough emphasis on biblical truth and sound doctrine. Instead, they're very big on the spirit, right? Big on emotions, big on experiences. They would tell you that what's most important is to uh, receive God's power, to receive God's anointing on your life. You need to encounter the living God and experience his presence week in and week out. That's what the Christian life is really all about. And as a result, some people on that side of the fence end up living the Christian life largely from the neck down, right? All heavy on feelings and very light on thinking, plenty of emotions and experience, but often not enough truth. So unfortunately, as a result of this division, some seem to think that in the Christian life, you have to choose. You have to choose one or the other. You have to choose between thinking and feeling. You have to choose between truth and experience. But Paul says in this passage and across the, the whole New Test, the whole of the New Testament, the, the Bible makes no such distinction. There is no such choice to be made. Paul says here you don't need to choose one or the other, and you mustn't choose one or the other because the Christian life is not about one or the other. It's about both. We are to be a, a thinking people when it comes to our faith. That is to be sure. The Bible is quite clear on that. And we do that very well, I think, here at the Hallows Church. But Paul also says here and elsewhere that we are to be an experiencing people too. Paul is going to challenge us along those lines in this passage. He wants us to know that experiencing relationship and intimacy with our God is far more important than many of us might think. In fact, what Paul is going to say in this passage, I believe, is that finding intimacy and relationship with God is actually one of our very deepest needs in this life as Christians. 
But Paul is also going to say in this passage too that most of us don't have this. We all have access to this. He would say it's, it's available to us, but we're not drawing on it. We're not uh, taking advantage of it. In a sense, what Paul is going to be saying in this passage is uh, that as Christians, we are spiritual billionaires, and yet most of us are living in poverty, spiritually speaking. We're settling for a walk with Jesus that is dry and mechanical, that is limp and lifeless when we don't have to and when, when we're not supposed to. And so let's explore this a bit today. Three things to draw out of this passage to consider about experiencing our God and experiencing intimacy with our God. First, why we need it, what it is, and how we receive it. First, why we need it. Paul is writing this letter here to Christians. He's praying this prayer for Christians. And when you consider that, and when you consider what he's saying here, there's a, there's a puzzle that immediately confronts us in this prayer. Because what Paul says in this prayer seems to contradict what he says in some other places. Paul prays in this passage that Christ would dwell in the hearts of the Ephesian Christians through faith. He prays that they, would be able to, that they would be able to understand God's love for them. He prays that they would know the love of Christ and that they would be filled with, with all the fullness of God. And so here's where the confusion comes in. In places like Colossians chapter 1, Romans chapter 8, John chapter 14, in other places too, Paul says all Christians have Christ dwelling in them by faith. He says that all Christians understand God's love and what he did for them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be Christians. And earlier in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul said that to be a Christian by definition is is to receive the, the fullness of God. You receive Christ by faith. He indwells you by the Spirit and you receive the fullness of God. And so you just, do, you, do you see the puzzle confronting us here in this passage? All of the things that Paul is praying for here that the Christians in Ephesus might receive and that you and I might receive are things that elsewhere he emphatically says we have already received. He seems to be praying for things that we already have. Or is he? Most commentators actually agree that what Paul is doing here is drawing a distinction between what we know in our heads and what we experience in our hearts. Paul seems to be saying that you can believe all the right things in your head as a Christian and still not experience what he's praying for here. In fact, one of Paul's main points in this passage is that uh, that is true for most all of us. Think about it. Paul wouldn't be praying for these things for the Ephesian Christians, unless he was assuming they weren't already happening. He's assuming they're not happening, and that's the very reason why he's praying for them to happen. Paul is assuming that the gospel truths they believe in their heads, the the truths that make them Christians in the first place, are not spiritually operative in their hearts and in their lives. And friends, here's why this is so important to Paul. Here's why this Uh, is so important to us. The the people that Paul is praying for here, their lives were a mess in many ways. These people were in all kinds of dangers. There was much violence and persecution and suffering all around them, disrupting their lives, and in some cases, uh, destroying their lives. But, But notice what Paul prays for here. And notice, too, what Paul doesn't pray for. 
Paul does not pray for their safety or their health. He doesn't pray for their finances or their families, though surely he did care about these things. He loved these people in Ephesus deeply. But he doesn't say, Lord, fix this. He doesn't say, Lord, change that. He doesn't say, Lord, get me out of prison so I can go help them. Paul does not reference what is going on around them at all in his prayers. Instead, he references what's going on inside of them. He does not pray about the external circumstances of their lives. He prays about the internal circumstances of their hearts and whether they're finding refuge in God's presence in the midst of what's going on around them because he believes that is what we need more than anything else. And if we're going to take Paul seriously this morning, which I hope we will, what this means uh, for you and I today, what Paul is saying is that uh, you may have come in here today thinking that your greatest problem is a financial problem, that somehow if that was set straight, you'd be okay, everything would be okay. Some of you think your greatest problem is a health problem or a relational problem or perhaps a professional problem. But Paul says you're wrong. He says your greatest problem is a is a heart problem. Paul says you need this. You need what I'm praying for here more than anything else. Why? Because if you have this, you can face anything and everything that that life throws at you. That's why Paul is praying in this way. He says you need this. You need it more than anything else in this life. But what exactly is it? What What exactly is Paul getting at here? What is he saying that you and I don't have but we need to have and we need to experience? We talked about why we need this. Let's talk now about what it is, what this is. And we begin to see what Paul is getting at as we look at verses 16 to 19 here as he makes uh, three petitions. He makes three requests in this prayer. He's praying to God for three things for these people that he loves in the churches of Ephesus. And we have much to learn, I think, from what those three things are that, that Paul prays for. You see the first petition in verse 16 there, where you see Paul saying to the Ephesian Christians, I'm praying to God for you. He says that God would strengthen you with his power in your inner being. Now, the inner being in the Bible is really a synonym for the heart. And in the Bible, the heart is the very center of your identity. It's what uh, makes you who you are. It's the control center, really, for your entire personality. And so when Paul talks about the inner being, he's moving into the realm of the, uh, the whole person, the seat and the center of the mind, the will, the emotions. And Paul's first prayer is that the Holy Spirit will come in and strengthen it and uh, empower it to do what, you might ask? Paul tells us in these verses to comprehend God's love, to, to grasp it in all of its many dimensions, and to come to know what can't be known to come to know the love of Christ in a way that surpasses knowledge, he says in verse 19. Now, if you've been married for any length of time, you may relate to what I'm about to say. There comes a time along the way in many marriages where one spouse or the other might uh, say, I know you love me. I, I, I don't doubt that. I don't question that. But I don't really feel that right now. I'm not experiencing your love for me because you're not expressing your love for me in a way that consoles and comforts and delights me. I know I'm loved, but I don't feel loved. I I know it in my head, but I'm not feeling it in my heart. And the power that Paul 
is praying for here is a power of the Holy Spirit that, that comes in and allows you to experience the love of Christ in, in your inner being in ways that console and comfort and delight. And it's interesting, Paul is presupposing, isn't he, in this prayer that apart from the power of God himself, you and I as Christians, we cannot uh, fully appreciate and we cannot fully experience the love of Christ. We need the power of God to come in and help us, and, and prayer apparently is one of the ways that happens. And it's a very interesting phrase Paul uses in verse 19. He says, I want you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I want you to know something that, that you can't know, something that is beyond description. When the love of Christ you believe in your head actually comes alive in your heart for the first time, very often that's the, the language that a person use, uses. It's, it, it's just like that. He's, a person says, I, I knew it before, but I didn't really know it at all. It's, it was something I thought I knew, but I, but I never really knew it at all. When you cross that line and you start talking like that, the truth by the power of the Holy Spirit has begun to break into your inner being. Paul is praying, not, uh, not that the Ephesians would understand the concept of Christ's love, but that they would experience the actuality of his love deep within them. Has that happened to you? Paul says we need to be seeking this. We need to be expecting this. And sometimes these experiences can be so profound, they, they forever change a person's life. Let me give you a few examples that I hope might uh, kind of whet your appetite and make you hungry for, for what we're talking about here. First, Blaise Pascal. This guy was a great mathematician in, in the 17th century. He was a, a tremendous intellectual and a Christian man too. This guy laid much of the groundwork for what is today the entire field of uh, probability and statistics. And he kept a section of one of his diary entries sewn inside of his, his coat so that it was near to him at all times. It was a diary entry describing an, an experience. It was describing an encounter that he had with God. And it's quite famous. Some of you may be familiar with this. It said this. In the year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd November, the day of St. Clement, from about half past 10 in the evening until about half an hour after midnight, and then in his diary, he drops down a line so that on a line all by itself is a single word, all caps with exclamation points after it. That word is fire. Then he writes, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers or end of the learned Certainty, joy, certainty, emotion, sight, joy, forgetfulness of the world and all outside of God. The world has not known you, but now I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. My God, do not leave me. Let me not ever be separated from you. He goes on, but I'll, I'll stop there. And so what, what just happened there? The reality of Christ's love by the power of the Holy Spirit broke into his inner being. He was experiencing the, the actuality of God's love and God's uh, very presence. He was coming to know what, what can't be known, a, a knowledge that surpasses knowledge, certainty, sight, 
joy. Do not leave me, he says. Pascal was experiencing the immediate presence, the the nearness of God and his multidimensional love. These are incredibly powerful words. His life was changed forever. He never again doubted the reality of God or the love of God or his own assurance of salvation. Another example, listen to a journal entry by the 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards. He says this, Once as I rode out into the woods in 1737 for a time of divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary. It must have been something of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued, as near I can judge, about an hour which kept me the greater part of the time in tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated, to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly Purity. Edwards went on to say this. He says, I have several other times had experiences of very much the same nature, which have had the same effects. Now, some people would say that people who have these types of spiritual experiences are uh, perhaps overly emotional, probably overly excitable, perhaps uneducated. But here you have two of the greatest intellects ever to live. Nobody really denies that. Extremely cerebral men experiencing intimacy in profound ways with his God, with our God. And it changed his life too. One last example, the 16th century nun Teresa of Avila wrote uh, some very searching material on prayer and communion with God. And she talks about her experiences in the similar sorts of ways. Listen to a few of her words. The consolation, the sweetness of the light was incomparably greater than what I had previously known. This time of prayer, she says, was a a glorious foolishness, a heavenly madness. I was bewildered and inebriated in his love. My soul desired to cry out and was beside itself. It could not bear So much joy, she says. And so did all these people get together and say, hey, let's write all the same sorts of things and everybody will think that we had the same experience? No, not at all. These are people with different genders and temperaments from different generations and cultures and spiritual traditions, all encountering the same God, our God. And Paul, in this passage, is saying this is available It's for every Christian, and it can be life-shaping and life-changing. And do you see now why Paul says to get ready for all this, the Holy Spirit has to strengthen you in your inner being? 
Because the truth is, we might crack under the weight of it otherwise. Our God is a God who makes himself known to his people. He can make himself known to each one of us if and when and and how he chooses. Most typically, he chooses to do so in in different ways at different times to, to different degrees in different people, sometimes in subtle ways, sometimes in spectacular ways, but in every case, in supernatural ways and always by his grace and by his timing. We're not in control of this. God is. That's why Paul prays in verse 16 that God would grant these things, that God would give these things to his people, reminding us that God controls this. God controls if and when and how he reveals himself to us. And so it's important to understand these experiences of God, they come and go. Nobody has this all the time. Nobody has this a lot of the time. You may have this sort of thing once a month or once a year or or once in a lifetime, yet Paul says it's real, it's possible, it's available, and we need to be seeking it. And as, we see, as we'll see in a moment, though God controls this and we don't, we do, we do have a part to play in seeking after God and in putting ourselves in a humble and hopeful posture that he might draw near to us in these ways. Now, there is a third petition here in this prayer. The last thing Paul prays for uh, he says, I'm praying for all of these things so that, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, very interestingly, in the New Testament, the term fullness and being filled with the, the fullness of God, it's not talking so much about a feeling as much as it's talking about a new kind of life, a new pattern of life, a, a fullness of life that results from knowing God and being reconciled to him. Now, this is quite important in light of what we've been talking about. I think there's a cautionary note for us here. We've been talking about spiritual experiences, which in many cases have many, many feelings and emotions tied up in them, as as you just heard. And of course, feelings and emotions are involved, but Paul is reminding us here that we're talking about far more than feelings and emotions. We need to always remember we're not going after feelings and emotions here, we're going after God because it's entirely possible to have your emotions aroused and to experience many feelings with, without having those things actually change the, the ways that you're living. But I think Paul would say, here's how you know you haven't just had an emotional experience, but you've actually begun to experience God himself. It's, and that is, it, it begins to change the ways that you're actually living. If you come out of church some weeks feeling moved and emotional and then you uh, go out into your life and you know and everybody else knows you're, you're just as insecure, you're just as anxious, you're just as needy as you were last month or last year, then you probably haven't had this experience. In other words, when you do actually grasp the love of God and experience uh, the love of Christ in your inner being, when you come to know what can't be known, it will permanently change the way that you think and the way that you live from the inside out. Most often, this happens gradually. Sometimes, though, it does happen abruptly, but in every case, it happens permanently and and noticeably. The reality of Christ and the love and the approval of Christ becomes more real. It becomes more affecting. It becomes more important than anything else. It becomes more important than the love and the approval of others. It becomes more important than financial status. It becomes more important than your professional 
achievement. And so through this inner experience, it's possible for all the external things in your life to become relativized and less important. You become less insecure about them. They don't drive you as much. You're not as anxious and upset if you're losing them. And as a result, you become less needy, right? Less afraid, less selfish, less proud. You're gradually but permanently changed and changing as God becomes more and more vivid deep within your inner being. And Paul says that's why we need this. And look at verse 20. After talking about this, in verse 20, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now we tend to think that we know what the Christian life is all about. We uh, tend to think that we know what it is and, and we know what to expect. But you heard the words of uh, Pascal and Edwards and others. You've heard the words of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. So I want to ask you, do you know anything at all about that sort of experience that we heard about? Do you think this is possible for you? I think far too many of us are settling in the Christian life. I think we need to Humbly repent and get after this together to seek and to expect life-changing spiritual experiences with our God. Why else would Paul remind us at the end of this passage in verse 20 that this power of God that he was talking about, this power of God that is at work in our inner being is able to do above and beyond what we can ask or think or imagine If you consider those words in context, in the context of of what Paul is saying, what we've been talking about here, Paul is reminding us, I think, that we're settling as Christians. He's saying we're not pressing into what God can do and what God is uh, willing to do in in a personal sense deep within us and in a corporate sense too as the church, as we seek after him, as we seek after intimacy and relationship with him. Now, by this time in the sermon, you may be saying, okay, Pastor Jeff, this sounds all very interesting. This sounds pretty lofty, but what am I supposed to do with all of this? We talked about why we need this. We talked about what it is. Let's get practical now and talk about how we receive this, how we approach this, how we put ourselves in a position to receive uh, this gift of grace from God. First, we uh, approach this humbly. Paul doesn't give us a list here of five or six things we can do, and then we get this, we receive this. This is a prayer. It's not a set of how-tos. Paul is humbly asking God for this, for the people that he cares about. In fact, when Paul prays for this, instead of telling us how to do it, he's essentially telling us that it is a gift, right? A gift from God. Verse 16 reminds us of that. Paul prays that God would grant these things, that God would gift these things to his people, And so this is not something that we have control over. We can't just uh, push buttons here. The Holy Spirit has to do this. And so we approach this humbly, but but we also approach this patiently. You can't expect this sort of prayer to be answered every day or even every year, but but every day I do think we, we should be saying, Lord, I know that I'm incapable of this. Lord, I need your help with this. Lord, I'm open to this. I want this. I I need this more than I even know. 
So we approach this humbly and patiently, but we also approach this deliberately. When Paul says in verse 14, for this reason I kneel before the Father, and then he sets off into this prayer, you should know that almost all praying in that day was done standing. When Jesus talks about praying in Mark chapter 11, he says, whenever you stand to pray, do this. And so you didn't really kneel to pray back then, except except when there was a very real intensity, a very real seriousness to your prayer. And that's And that's how Paul prays this prayer for his brothers and sisters in Christ in Ephesus. He does it kneeling. And I think what Paul may be suggesting here is that if you want to move from just believing in God to to really experiencing God in your your inner being, you're going to have to get uh, serious about it. You're going to have to draw a line in the sand and, and step over it and say, I'm going after this. I'm going to seek after God in this way. But we do need to be careful with this too. As I mentioned before, let's be clear about something. What you're seeking and what you need to be seeking here is not an experience of God, but it's God himself. You won't ever get true Christian experience by going after the experience. You can only go get it by going after God. If you want the experience and the feelings and the vibes and not God, you'll never get the experience, not the true experience, not the, not the experience that changes you from, from the inside out. The experience is there so that you can have him, not so you can have great feelings about him. Let's not ever lose sight of that. We have to pursue God, not the experience of God, and then we'll get the, we'll get the experience of God because, because he's the source of it. One other thing about kneeling, Paul kneeling before the Father in verse 14, you see, kneeling was also a sign of, of submission. It was a sign of Uh, deference to authority. Paul is putting himself in a posture before God that says, I submit to you. I I submit every area of my life to you. And so let me be as practical as I can for just a moment. It probably won't work seeking after all this while at the same time, over here, there's a part of my life in which I'm doing something I know I shouldn't be doing. Whoops, I did it again. I know I shouldn't be doing it. I really need to stop doing it, but there I go again. Just at the psychological level, I do think that you're going to struggle to sense his love and to sense his presence if your conscience is constantly badgering you because you're stuck in a pattern of sin that you know is wrong, but but there you go again. At some level, you're going to If you're going to get serious about getting after this and getting after intimacy with God, you're going to have to kneel. You're going to have to submit to his authority over your life, over every area of your life. All right, so we said we need to approach this humbly. We need to approach this deliberately. We also need to approach this intelligently. Seeking after intimacy with God requires thinking. This is not a mystical exercise where you sit back and wait, wait for it to happen. It's not typically something that just hits you out of the blue. No, it starts with thinking. It starts with thinking about the truth, thinking about biblical truth, thinking about gospel truth. That's where it usually begins. And so you open your Bible, you read your Bible, right? And when you come across a verse or a section that strikes you in one way or the other, you slow down. You take that section, you read it over, you read it again and again and again. You read it slowly, you read it deliberately. 
Reflect on it. Ask questions of it. Let it ask questions of you. Do you remember Paul's second petition in verse 18? What did he ask for there? He prayed to God that the Christians in Ephesus would be able to to comprehend, to comprehend what is the length, width, height, and depth of God's love for us in Christ. He prays that they would comprehend God's love. And this word comprehend, it's a fascinating word. You'll also see it show up as grasp in a number of translations. But get this, the Greek word for comprehend in verse 18, it's a word that has it's a word that has caused commentators to kind of scratch their heads for hundreds of years, and, and here's why. The word means to overtake someone or to seize someone. It means to jump on somebody and, and overpower them and wrestle them to the ground and knock them out and to take what they have. It's a word that at times was used to describe an attack or an ambush of a city and the sacking and the plundering of all that city's wealth. It's a very strong word, a very interesting word for Paul uh, to choose to use in this verse as he's, as he's talking about how you and I are to get after the, the fullness of God's love for us in Christ. So why would Paul use this fighting metaphor, this wrestling metaphor? What is he talking about? He's not saying we're supposed to wrestle God to the ground and rob him, but he is saying we're supposed to wrestle to the ground and to rob and to plunder and to seize all the riches, all the truths, all the doctrines, all the passages about God that God has gifted to us in his scriptures. He's inviting us into a very active and very determined meditation on God's word. Most of us read our Bibles and then we say a prayer and we go about our day, but if that's what you're doing, you're, you're leaving out an essential element of what, what Paul is talking about here. He's inviting very deliberate meditation. He's inviting reflection on the truth and he says you need to approach it ready to wrestle, ready to, ready to seize something valuable. Friends, perhaps the most essential discipline to experiencing intimacy with God is the art of meditation. And I do wish I had more time to talk about this, but I need to be pretty brief. But Christian meditation, it's it's not the same thing as Bible study or prayer, but it is a sort of combination or a, a compound of the two. It's taking in the truth and reflecting on it, talking to God about it, looking at it from different angles and perspectives, ruminating on it, and praying it down into your inner being until something happens. I bet you didn't know that the Hebrew word for meditate is where we get our word ruminate, which is the word we use to describe a cow chewing its cud. So how's that for a metaphor? It's quite fitting, actually, right? A cow chews on a piece of food for a while, he swallows it, and then he says to himself, well, that was pretty good. I think I'll bring that back up and chew on it some more. When you meditate on the word of God, that's what you're doing. You're trying to get the full sweetness and flavor out of that piece of text. You're reading through a text that talks about some aspect or attribute of God, and you're not just trying to get information out of it. No, you chew slowly. You you bring it back up again and again, and you assume there's more sweetness in there that you're not yet tasting. 
Many of us miss this. Many of us have our devotion time. We read our Bible. We study the Bible for a bit. Maybe we, maybe we write some things down. We, we mark some things up. We think, uh, well, that's very interesting what I just read. And then, then we move into prayer, confessing our sins, going down our list of prayers. And don't get me wrong. Those are very good things. Those are very important things. But you really need to wrestle with that text, too. You need to You need to take it in. You need to think it through. You need to assume there's more there, that there's more truth there that you need to wrestle down into your heart. As Richard Baxter says, meditation is taking the truth and praying it into your soul until it catches fire. You need to think, you need to reason, you need to apply, you need to pray until the truth breaks out, until it uh, radiates, until it explodes into your inner being and suddenly you find yourself saying, I always, I always knew that, but now I know that in a way that makes me feel like I, like I never knew it before. Now I'm using sensory language here because that's how it works. That's how it feels. What was once information becomes sensation as the truth catches fire in your heart. Have you ever tried this to meditate on God's word in this way? If you haven't, I hope you will. I'd love to explore this with you. If you have tried this, I hope you'll try this again. I hope you'll keep at it. This is one of the main ways that we draw near to our God and and seek after him and expect to encounter him. There is a certain discipline to it. There's a certain skill to it. There's a certain adventure to it too. You don't have a lot of control over it. It's a, it's a lot like whitewater rafting. It takes some skill to do whitewater rafting, right? You have to practice at it to get good at it. And yet your skill level has very little to do with the fun and the adventure that, that you can have while you're doing it. It's the, it's the river that provides that. To some degree, after you get into the river, your skill helps you stay on the river It helps you, in a sense, harness the river and navigate the river, but it's the river that takes you for the ride. It's the the river that makes the ride thrilling. And you and I, seeking after God, humbly, deliberately, intelligently, you and I committing ourselves to prayer and meditation in these sorts of ways, it's kind of like that. It's, It's putting you in the river And from there, you never know what might happen. Each time you put yourself into the river, you never know. The ride may get unpredictable. It may catch you by surprise. You may hit some exciting sections, and and you won't always be in control. Quite possibly, in fact, when you least expect it, you may be in for the ride of your life. But before that can ever happen, friends, you have to be willing to put yourself into the river. We have to put ourselves in that in that river. And so let's get after this together and see where the river takes us. Let's pray.